Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, Navid Jamali, and you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Jason Amarin is a retired U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel with decades of experience and service, many of it in the Special Forces community all over the world. And in the course of his decades of service, he has helped secure a number of victories for the U.S. and our partner nations. And he's racked up a truly impressive number of honors, including a Bronze Star and a Purple Heart. Amron has been happily retired from the military for several years now, but you might have seen him in recent headlines about hostage negotiations. Amron's experience with hostage negotiations is because he was involved in the safe handover of Bo Bergdahl, who was captured by the Taliban after deserting in 2009. That negotiation is now back in headlines because of another swap that just took place. Bashar Norzai, an Afghan tribal leader and Taliban associate, who has been freed in exchange for U.S. contractor Mark Freerichs. Freerichs, of course, was the last U.S. hostage being held by the Taliban. 
But as Jason Amarin told Newsweek, Norza has been eyed as a potential prisoner swap before. In fact, 10 years ago, when negotiations to get Bo Bergdahl home had reached a standstill. Jason, uh, a lot to talk about today. Uh, I'm thrilled to have you. So thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. All right. Let's start with uh, this prisoner swap. You know, one of the things that really fascinated me about this story is, and I've been following, we, we actually broke uh, the actual capture of Freericks, who Mark Freericks, who was recently released. He is a Former, he's a Navy veteran who was taken hostage by uh, the Taliban. And there's some questions surrounding sort of that hostage taking. But the, the thing that also fascinates me is the person that he was traded for, Bashar Norzai. And you have an interesting history with Norzai that sort of predates this capture. Can you, why don't we start a little bit talking about when you first learned about Norzai and what the circumstances around, surrounding that were? Years and years ago, I mean, it, it's kind of surreal now to think that it was, uh, God, almost 10 years ago that uh, Norzai was first on the radar for me. What happened was I was on a team working out of the Pentagon, and we were asked to try to find a way to get Bergdahl home, because at that point, just nothing was happening. And uh, the, the whole effort to recover him was was pretty much stuck. Can, can I just so, before you go, before yeah. you go on, because I think for some for some of our listeners, they may not know when you talk about Bergdahl, can we explain who Bo Bergdahl was or is? So Bo Bergdahl was, I, I mean, really our, our only POW that I can think of uh, during our 20 year war in Afghanistan. Um, he would walked off base, was taken uh, prisoner, and at that point, uh, things really just kind of devolved into uh, ongoing, endless negotiations to uh, find a way to, to uh, get him released. We knew that he was uh, likely taken to Pakistan, uh, and that in and of itself is a whole crazy adventure where there's a lot of debate over how quickly we knew he was moved to Pakistan. And then there's a lot of emotion tied to it because uh, service members were out in the countryside of Afghanistan looking for him in good faith when in reality he was probably taken to Pakistan almost immediately uh, upon capture. So you have Bo Bergdahl, who's held by the Haqqani Network, a designated terror organization. Uh, they're in turn aligned with the Taliban that were not designated terrorists. And how do you negotiate and get them free? And that's where it just turned into a huge mess. And we simply didn't have uh, institutions that were designed to deal with that. Uh, Pakistan wasn't part of the uh, Operation Enduring Freedom. He was basically outside of uh, the military authorities, uh, you know, is this a criminal case? Well, he's a DOD service member, but, you know, when you look at like FBI, they deal with terrorists. So is it an FBI issue? You know, for to them, it was not, uh, but they're ready to assist. I mean, it, it just was a total mess. And on top of that, you had the Taliban, uh, who really weren't 
interested in talking to us after a, another fiasco between the State Department uh, and the Taliban, where the State Department was seeking the release of five Taliban leaders because they believed it would jumpstart peace talks. But then the U.S. government kind of pushed back, said, no, we're going to hang on to them. Then with Bergdahl's captivity, the State Department said, okay, well, what if we release the five in exchange for Bergdahl? And they'd all but kind of shaken on the deal with uh, the Taliban when Congress and everybody became aware of the deal and it turned into a big political firestorm. And even though the State Department was ready to carry it out, basically the U.S. government as a whole said, no way, and that killed it. And that led to... uh, really kind of a, a stalemate where the Taliban left the table, Bergdahl's in captivity, and he just sat there for, for years. Uh, so my team was asked to see if we could figure out, you know, some way to get him out of there. And we undertook a few things at once. We had to audit our hostage recovery system in general, just to figure out what what had actually been going on uh, and why. We also had to figure out a way to get the Taliban back to the negotiating table. And we had to figure out what was a politically acceptable deal to actually trade for Bergdahl since we use the, uh, the Taliban five as sort of a what not to do. Uh, so it, it turned into a pretty complicated process. It started uh, or about 2012. And in the course of that, that's where we ran across Norzai. And, and it was Norzai, was Nor- was it something you broached or was it something that the Taliban slash the Haqqani network brought up in exchange for Bergdahl? I understand that, you know, the five had sort of been become, like you said, a, a political hot potato. Who first broached the idea of Norzai being traded for Bergdahl? Was it us or was it them? It, it was us. Um, so when we audited the whole Bergdahl recovery, we found that uh, as we walked into it in 2012, essentially nobody was doing anything at that point. Uh, but nobody even knew that nobody was doing anything at that point. Uh, you had... Uh, the U.S. Central Command that believed SOCOM was doing it. Uh, you had SOCOM that believed the State Department was doing it. And you had the State Department that said, well, this is a DOD issue. So it, it was this weird thing where, you know, after we looked around, looked around, we're like, okay, wait, so nobody's actually doing anything. Um, and we, we found that the system had completely collapsed. Uh, you, you would think that in the war on terror, you know, we, we would have broken the code on, you know, rescuing people from terrorists as the Haqqani at that point were said to be, which is a separate issue. I, I never really actually agreed with that designation. But uh, w- with this complete breakdown, our question was, why did it break down? And well, we had a system that was designed where if you felt clearly under someone's jurisdiction, then you know, you, you had at least a chance at recovery. You know, if you were taken hostage in the United States somewhere and the FBI got involved or local authorities, you know, then there was a way to get you out. If you're taken hostage uh, in a designated combat area or someplace that already had military authorities in place, 
then you could be recovered. And we, you know, you'd hear stories of like, you know, uh, Navy SEALs in some obscure location rescuing someone, but it wasn't because special authorities were made for the rescue. It was because they're already operating in the area so they could do it. Well, we had Bergdahl in Pakistan, along with a number of Western hostages, and they simply were in a gap in the coverage, if you will. Uh, and because of that, really everything had effectively stopped. And so we had to, you know, really just uh, be creative and we had to talk to a lot of people. Uh, one of my folks was sent out to Gitmo to talk to the interrogators and basically find out, you know, who did we have there? Was there anybody that we could use? We basically cast a wide net to figure out, you know, what, what was in the realm of the possible. And we came out came up with a number of, of ideas, but the best one was uh, just by happenstance, again, us just networking and talking to a lot of people. I talked to someone who knew someone who had been involved in uh, Norzai being arrested and, and, you know, imprisoned in the United States. Well, well let's, let's start there because I think that sure. is, you know, that is a fascinating part. So you've got, you got Bergdahl and, and, but Bashir Norzai is an interesting character. And, you know, I've seen a lot of um, in the couple of days since the story has come back to the forefront, I've seen a lot of ways that he's been described, you know, and the whole moniker of Pablo Escobar of the Middle East, which I, I imagine you think is laughable. But, yes, you know, so for those who may not know about Norzai's sort of backstory, 2004, 2000, and he's, you know, He's added to the Foreign Narcotics King, Kingpin Designation Act. So we, we talk about these different government agencies, right? So we're fighting a war in Afghanistan. Let's just keep it simple. It's DOD, right? And then under this Designation Act, you also have the uh, uh, DEA that gets involved. So his name comes up. And, of course, the whole idea of a drug kingpin in Afghanistan is laughable because, as I'm sure you'll get into – when you, you know, one of the chief exports for Afghanistan is, is poppy seeds, right? So if you're a tribal leader, which is how most of Afghanistan is organized, um, part of your revenue stream is based on being exporting poppies. And that's not, you know, it's not quite the same thing as being a drug. It's like a crop for them. So he comes in 2005 to New York City. And this is where it gets interesting because he comes to New York City as a sort of emissary, right? His goal is to come to New York to help negotiate with the U.S. government with the Taliban. So he's this sort of, you know, he almost, in a lot of ways, of course, we don't, the U.S. government didn't recognize the Taliban, right? So he comes almost as a, as a diplomat. And he's promised by the U.S. government that he will not, by his handlers, that he, that he will not be arrested. But that's not exactly what happened. So let's take it from there. Can you talk a little bit about the story of how Norzai came to be in U.S. captivity and why he was jailed and charged um, in federal court as opposed to those who ends up being, you know, uh, enemy combatants and detainees in Guantanamo Bay. Can you explain sort of what happened there? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll tell you what what I had heard, but, uh, you know, the, this is one where, you know, I, I didn't dig too deeply into the circumstances of, of the uh, unsealing of um, the arrest warrant. But my understanding from, you know, basically talking to the guy that was part of getting him to the U.S. Uh, in the first place uh, was that Norzai came to be debriefed 
it was really about debriefing him about just general information about the Taliban and everything going on in the war. So it, the way it, it was characterized for me wasn't that he was an envoy. It was that he was really almost coming over more as a uh, intelligence asset. But regardless, it was, you know, a notion of safe passage to the U.S. and back. He, he you know, had no belief that he well, was coming to the U.S. to face any, but Jason, uh, any I mean, prosecution. Not only do you not believe that, it, it's, it seems to me that that legitimately wasn't, it wasn't this, you know, sort of Chris Hansen <laughs> moment where they're trying to draw this, yeah. you know, to catch. Like he was, I think, from what I've read, he was brought here with the honest intent of, of exactly, as you said, being debriefed. He wasn't brought here so that he could be arrested, right? Is that your understanding? Right, and, and so the, the and I, you know, just to kind of pr- protect the innocent, uh, I'm not going to go into details of uh, the, the gentleman who, you know, brought him over. But this gentleman had a relationship with him, had a relationship with the ISI, and he basically uh, was asked to get Norzai to the U.S. And he was aware that Norzai might be arrested as he set this up, but he also believed there was a possibility Norzai wouldn't be arrested. So I don't know how much he was actually lied to. Because from his perspective, if Norzai came to the U.S. and the debrief went well enough, they might not unseal the indictment and arrest him. You know, that was at least what he believed. But I don't know if there was ever any any real intent to possibly not unseal the indictment. But effectively, he came to the U.S. and boom, they unsealed the indictment. He's, uh, you know, tried on on charges of narco trafficking, et cetera, et cetera. And then he's he's imprisoned. Uh, and he, he's and imprisoned that, for life, though. I mean, right. So, again, putting your DOD hat on, your former DOD hat. Yeah. Which, in your opinion, would the U.S. have been better served using this guy as a source, um, or arresting him and imprisoning him for life to impact the drug trade in Afghanistan? Well, you have to go back to two thousand and three or so in Afghanistan as. Uh, you know, NATO is really kind of sinking its teeth into, you know, the general security problem of Afghanistan. Uh, we, we were just so obscenely naive about Afghanistan that we had a number of initiatives that we were pursuing that were really kind of laughable. Uh, we wanted to reform their judicial system, and the Italians were in charge of that. And basically, the Italians sent over uh, tons of books about the law to uh, the Afghans to uh, consume because that would solve all their legal woes. Uh, you had the Germans that were uh, tasked with training their police force, and they had this amazing year-long program to uh, train police, which was so over-engineered, they really needed it to be more like, you know, a, you know, 90 day program to crank, crank out police, but instead they had a year long program. Uh, you had a DDR program, uh, uh, disarm, demobilize, reintegrate, uh, the warlord military. So basically the whole idea was to disarm the warlords. Uh, you also had a, a counter narcotics uh, agenda where we would go out and 
you know, stop all the narco trafficking in Afghanistan, which was, uh, you know, obviously a major issue for Europe. I'm not going to make light of it. But, you know, at the same time, you have a calamity that is taking place in Iraq. You have resources in Afghanistan that uh, are basically going to dwindle. And you have a security vacuum that we never adequately filled in Afghanistan that was really very similar to the security vacuum we created in Iraq, uh, only it, it took a lot longer to blow up in our faces in Afghanistan. But in the middle of all of this, uh, somebody, and this is where I, I, don't, I don't know who the somebodies were specifically, because I, I don't actually blame the DEA for this, but they thought it was a good idea to remove Norzai from the table because you'd be doing two things at once. We'd be going after the narco trade and we'd be demobilizing a warlord. The, the problem was Norzai had enormous influence in Southern Afghanistan in the area, uh, basically south of Kandahar, crossing the border into Pakistan. He was a Pashtun that was aligned with Karzai. Uh, basically his tribe was part of the tribe that helped us overthrow the Taliban. He was a guy who could deal with everybody. He, he had this uh, quality about him where he could work with the Taliban, he could work with the government, he could work with Pakistan. He basically could keep the peace in that region south of Kandahar that was you know, basically so uh, volatile. And we arrested him. I mean, he here's a guy who's one of our most critical allies in southern Afghanistan, and we arrested him to be able to go after narcotics and remove a warlord. I mean, it it I it just was so stupid. Uh, it just so ridiculously misguided. Oh my god. I mean, listen from my small perch. I had a good friend who we were both intel Navy Reserve Intelligence officers together. And I remember he got, we were both going through orders and, and he got tapped. He was really excited. He was going to go, um, you know, the big thing was go to JSOC and, and he got some orders to go to JSOC and they pulled, someone pulled them aside at one point. I guess he was at a, he was an attorney of some sort. And they said, you're an attorney, you understand the law. Well, guess what? You're going to Afghanistan to teach the uh, Afghan police how to do homicide investigations. And it was the most, of course, absurd thing. He knew nothing about homicide investigations, but from the military standpoint, well, he was a lawyer. So of course he can teach this stuff. And I think the standard was pretty low. It was pretty low about homicide investigations. I don't know how many homicide investigations the, you know, uh, con, you know, the police actually did over there, but nonetheless, I think it's sort of, you're right. Like there's this, it's this for some people listening. I don't think they realize that, you know, in the height of uh, the war in Afghanistan, there really were these competing <clears throat> goals. And I think that, you know, sort of you laid out, uh, again, for those who may not understand the sort of landscape of Afghanistan, is it a fair assessment to say that it is primarily sort of organized and sort of this tribal structure and that Norzai, as you said, you know, is Pashtun, southern Afghanistan, you know, he represented one of the significant tribes. And that's perhaps why um, the Taliban was so keen to have him back. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I when you, if you want to understand Afghanistan sort of in a nutshell, uh, although I'll mix metaphors here, Afghanistan is shaped like a leaf with a Hindu Kush, sort of like that central vein of a leaf that runs through it. North 
of the Hindu Kush, you had the Uzbek, Tajik, and Hazara tribal lands mixed with, with, uh, with some Pashtun. But in the south, it's the land of the Pashtun. Uh, during the invasion in 2001, again, something that's kind of comical to look back on, but when my team uh, went in with Hamid Karzai, we were responsible for the Pashtun tribal belt. And that, I, you know, again, it's a reflection of how little we understood Afghanistan because my 11-man team was responsible for all of southern Afghanistan during the invasion. Wow. I mean, you know, you it, it's just funny to look back on now, but, you know, Norzai, though, was a critical part of just the general security apparatus among the Pashtun tribes themselves. And the Pashtun had their own agenda. It wasn't always in line with what we wanted. They knew how to make deals with the other tribes. I, I mean, Norzai was just a, a very critical linkage and all of that. And we decided to remove them. I mean, we really, we shot ourselves in the foot. It's, it's just, it was, it was and, terribly and misguided. So let me ask you, Jason, it, we know that, that you know, you brought up trading Norzai. We know that eventually he was, you know, traded for Mark Freericks, the last U.S. hostage held by the Taliban. Was Norzai someone the Taliban consistently asked for? No, the Taliban weren't actually asking for him before we proposed it. Uh, that that was uh, in and of itself a, a huge a huge journey because when we basically debriefed the guy who help Norzai come to the U.S. and, you know, get arrested. He had to educate me on who Norzai was, what his influence was and everything. Uh, everything I've been saying about Norzai was really part of my pitch to everybody in U.S. government as we're developing the deal. I, I basically had to pitched the notion of trading Norzai to the DOD chain all the way to the top. I had to pitch it through the State Department. I had to pitch it uh, to was intelligence it, was, agencies. Was that I mean, well-received? I mean, did the U.S. government feel – I mean, I imagine that just the concept of negotiating with the Taliban probably ruffled more than a few feathers. Well, I, it, every – Everybody we dealt with responded to it in their own way. I mean, you had, you know, personal and parochial interests tied into the people we spoke to at the different organizations. So like at DOD, uh, when Norzai was, was taken off the board, uh, there was another prominent Afghan that basically stepped in, took over the drug trade and, you know, was a close ally to the U.S. while basically pissing off the entire Pashtun tribal belt. And this guy's ultimately assassinated. Uh, but you had uh, senior officers who knew him well and thought of him as a friend. And I had one person uh, push back very hard about releasing Norzai because it would, you know, affect this other Afghan ally of ours. And there were things like that that we just had to work through uh, because, you know, hey, it's great that this other Afghan is someone that you respect and all. He took over the drug trade. I don't know how you missed that, but you, you right. know, I mean, so there, there were fights all over. Uh, when I went to one intelligence organization, they brought out their top analyst who basically said, I, I've never heard of this gentleman before. Uh, I, I don't see why the Taliban would want him. 
And, you know, what, what do you say to that? I mean, I'm, you know, how do you argue with the top analyst of an intelligence organization? I mean, you kind of can't, uh, you know, so I, we ran into, you know, roadblocks all over the place, but we ultimately were able to get everybody uh, uh, that we needed on board with it, you know, and, and the general idea was, hey, if, if the Taliban really want him and we can do this deal, okay, works for me. Uh, but but eventually that, that came to sort of a close, right? At a certain point, um, they go back to the Taliban five, which were eventually traded for Bergdahl. Bergdahl is released. And what happens with Norzai? He goes, well, he goes, he goes on. This is, you know, and he sits in prison here. Um, yeah, but it, I, there's a key step here, though, that that I, I really need to mention because uh, it, it sort of makes this last trade even more ironic. Uh, before we could really pursue the deal, we had to deconflict with everybody, which we did. And, you know, one of the last stations of the cross was uh, dealing with uh, the State Department and the uh, special representative to Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, so we had to talk to the State Department folks there. And when we briefed them, uh, their response was, well, we know nothing about this or if, it, if this deal will fly, but it doesn't matter anyway because this is a DOD issue. And hey, if, if that's what you want to do, it's up to you because Bergdahl's your guy. So a, a critical component of this to understand is we briefed everybody on the deal before going to the Taliban with it. Uh, and then when we went to the Taliban, we also incorporated uh, the Haqqani and the ISI in the deal to make sure everybody was aware of it. And that was where it, it basically caught fire. Uh, we, we didn't know for sure that they would be interested, but we couldn't even pitch it until we pitched it to everybody basically in the U.S. government. Uh, then we took it to them and they, they were clearly interested. Now, it, it wasn't these are people that are very good at negotiating. So, you know, there was a lot of nuance to it. It wasn't that we said, how about Norzai? And they said, yes, Norzai. I mean, it, it was all a very subtle game that went on and on, but we basically uh, got everybody interested in the deal. Uh, and that was where it all kind of uh, went to shit. I'm allowed <laughs> so to say You can, so it goes to shit. Which means, but it doesn't, it doesn't, right? So Norzai, for Nor, as far as Norzai is concerned, it goes to shit. But eventually you do, we do get Bergdahl back. The original deal goes, gets pushed. And now Norzai is, I guess, something the Taliban are still interested in. So let's fast forward. I know you have since left, but let's fast forward to, to Freericks. And, and this latest, um, you know, Freericks is, is, he is, you know, the last U.S., He's last American being held hostage. And I know there's a lot of, for a lot of people, they might, that might feel like, well, what about Americans that are still in Afghanistan today? And yes, while there might be Americans still in Afghanistan, this guy was actually captured and held hostage. It's a very different thing from being stopped from leaving. Although there's, I know it's, again, as you would say, nuance, but this guy was a hostage. Do you think just very directly, Jason, I mean, was this the right trade? Was letting Norzai go for, for Mark Freericks the right thing for the president to approve? So when we worked on Norzai for Bergdahl, it was a clear yes. Uh, it, it was too important to get Bergdahl out. We still could have salvaged uh, some of the security situation in the South by 
getting Norzai out, I think. Um, you know, I, I, so in my analysis in 2012, I, you know, it, it made sense. Flashing forward uh, to Freerix, um, I, I had to kind of take a step back and think about it, and it, it because it's a different equation. You know, it, uh, as you look at the collapse in Afghanistan, the U.S. withdrawal, you know, you, you, have to, you have to always balance the fact that a high-profile prisoner exchange suggests that we're willing to do high-profile prisoner exchanges. And everybody knows we are. It's just the more you advertise it, the more you worry about, uh, you know, generating, uh, what's the term, um, generating demand in the system. You know, you, you don't want people to say, oh, hey, let's go grab another hostage and get this guy out of captivity. So, I mean, you're, you're talking about a high profile trade and you do have to do a number of balance tests. And it, as I pondered it, because I, I, I first heard about the possibility of, of a trade for Norzai over a year ago. I mean, I, I would have people, you know, basically whispering in my ear, hey, it might be going down. Um, but as time went on, I, you know, I had to kind of reassess it. And, and I got to say, I, I do still believe that it is worth getting him out of captivity. It, it's worth it's worth the trade just for different reasons, you know, and, and that's the critical analysis in this is the trade now has a, a lot of uh, different second order effects than they would have, you know, back in 2012 as we were getting Bergdahl out. But, you know, even when you watch uh, the, the press releases that from Norzai himself, he didn't come out of captivity and say death to America or anything like that. You know, he, basically kept it shockingly positive so far uh, and just wanted to go back to his tribe. Uh, so, I, I mean, I think that releasing him is actually good for the country. I think that he potentially could be a moderating influence of the Taliban. You know, he, he's returning to basically bolster our former allies there. I, so, yeah, I, I think it was worth doing but it's a, a different arithmetic than, you know, what, what I was using in 2012 for Bergdahl. But isn't that the point, Jason? I mean, isn't, isn't part of this, you know, one of the last hanging sort of things about Afghanistan was both Free Ricks and Norzai. We wanted Free Ricks back and the Taliban wanted Norzai. It's sort of kind of after with the withdrawal, it kind of is something that's, getting us gradually closer to really shutting the door completely on Af on sort of Afghanistan. Is that, I mean, that's sort of, you know, what I see it. I'm sure that's what the Biden administration calculus was as well. And is this something that kind of moves us a little closer to the finality of our involvement in Afghanistan? That's a good question. I, I think, I mean, if you, if you want to go all the way back to, you know, the roots of nine 11, um, you know, the, the answer, the short answer is actually no. I was a uh, cadet at West Point in 93. I was serving disciplinary chores, uh, marching back and forth with a rifle on my shoulder. And they stopped us to tell us that the World Trade Center had been bombed. And that was, you know, that, that first attack in the uh, parking garage. 
you know, and then you, you flash forward eight years and then the World Trade Center is brought down. And, you know, my, my feel for the whole thing was that we, we had, the world as a whole had turned their back on Afghanistan and, and let the country, you know, collapse into a more and more failed state where they, they became, they, they basically were, were very well suited to ally with Al-Qaeda, where Al-Qaeda could, you know, buy themselves a, a failed state, help prop up the government with money and create this amazing safe haven you know, for, for their terrorist organization, you know, it, it, it was uh, almost inevitable when you look at how the world just uh, despised everything the Taliban were doing in the country and therefore, you know, closed off, uh, you know, access to humanitarian funds and things like that, because, you know, you, the Taliban is so horrible and terrible. How can we, you know, in, in any way, uh, subsidize their form of government. And I think over the years, we, we probably could have been a lot more creative. We probably could have found other ways to engage. You know, we had allies in the Northern Alliance, uh, or at least we had potential allies in the Northern Alliance long before 9-11. There were things that we, we you know, might and probably should have done uh, to head off you know, the, the just uh, untouchable safe haven to Al-Qaeda that, it, that Afghanistan had become before the invasion. And so now as we flash forward, uh, you know, people are taking that uh, drone attack uh, uh, on the head of Al-Qaeda as an indicator that, oh, the, the policy works. It, it's push-button warfare. We don't need boots on the ground. Basically, if there's somebody we don't like, we'll just send a drone in and uh, kill them with a hellfire, you know, go team. And what worries me is that, you know, that that was our mentality, you know, prior to 9-11. And if that's our mentality now, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't believe that you're literally going to have a 9-11 in another 20 years that started in Afghanistan from safe havens, blah, blah, blah. But I think that we can set the conditions for Afghanistan to become a safe haven to terrorist networks that operate worldwide and cause all kinds of destruction. And for that reason, when you say, you know, is this going to really close the chapter there? I think it's actually a mistake to view anything as truly closing the chapter because then we didn't learn anything, you know, about 9-11. Well, okay. So let's switch gears a little bit here. And in the a little bit of time we have left. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, uh, the one thing I remember from my time at Naval War College. I don't remember much, but I do remember that there isn't really anyone who's ever won an insurgency, <laughs> won against an insurgent force, right? Um, we have what I guess, you know, insurgency maybe in part, but it's also conventional forces battling it out a little bit in, in, in Ukraine. What do you, Jason, make of, of Vladimir Putin's latest sort of, I don't want to say saber rattling because that sort of minimizes it. But, you know, when, I, when I've talked to uh, current senior military leaders today, I mean, they really do genuinely. And I don't think this is bluster. I, I do think that they, you know, they do say that Vladimir Putin threatening, you know, uh, to use and I, no one s- suggests that he's going to, of course, but just the mere fact that he's talking about it in such an overt way is language they haven't heard 
well, they tell me since the cold, you know, the height of the Cold War and specifically the Cuban Missile Crisis. What do you make of Vladimir Putin, who is doing very, very badly in Ukraine? What do you make of him making these threats? I do not think he's going to use nuclear weapons uh, right now. So based upon where we are today in Ukraine, I, I don't believe it's a real threat. Uh, now, that isn't to say that things could change in such a way that, you know, you, you they change in such a way that I have to reassess and say, hey, wow, we might use nukes. I mean, you know, I, I, I'd never say never, but I, I don't. I don't take any of his current threats about nukes seriously. Do, do you uh, think? Do you think if he started to look? The one thing I remember from the FBI telling me about the Russians, or like when I wrote my book, they're like, "Look, take your victory lap, but whatever you do, don't humiliate them." That you know, they they understand loss, they understand taking their lumps. It's the question of humiliation, which really is something they don't go for. If Putin, you know, loses to a point now that he's mobilizing at least three hundred thousand people. Uh, reservists, as they're, they're saying, whatever that means. But do you think if you really, if two things happen, if he starts to take significant, much more significant losses now, and then secondly, that can't be covered up domestically. And secondly, if he perceives, and again, this isn't rational or necessarily legitimate, but if he perceives that Ukrainian, the forces of Ukraine, uh, and look, let's be honest, you know, backed by America, not just with lethal weapons, but there's probably more going on there. Um, are coming far closer to Russian sovereign territory. Do you think that, so in short, Jason, if Ukraine does so well that they're moving towards Russia, do you think that changes the calculus as to whether Putin would be, you know, considered using those types of weapons? Well, the, the fundamental question that you need to ask about any of these regimes is, you know, what, what's their goal? What is the goal of, of uh, Putin? And I, I think conventional wisdom, and I agree with this, is that his number one goal is survival. Putin wants his regime to survive. That's it. You know, top goal, Putin must remain in charge of Russia. Right now, you, you do not see, at least overtly, you know, there, there's just no indication of it, you know, anything covertly either. There isn't really uh, a global effort to remove Putin from power. Uh, I, I think most would agree with that right now. Uh, you know, certainly under the Trump administration, you know, any efforts to destabilize Putin you know, would have stopped. And then under the Biden administration, okay, maybe they kicked off again, maybe not. But given Biden's unwillingness uh, to engage in, in a lot of the, the messier aspects of foreign relations, I don't think that Biden would have kicked off any any uh, covert program to remove Putin from power. But, but, but well, let, if, let me go. Well, let well, me well, if, if, well, well hold on, because I want to, I think this is important. Yeah. Even if he does, so there's, you're right. I understand about kicking off a covert program and you know, that, that has its own, its own you know, danger involved with it, you have, you know, especially if it's detected. But putting that aside for a second, like you said, Vladimir Putin's major concern goal is to keep himself in power. What I'm suggesting, Jason, is you know, the, the calculus that Vladimir Putin uses to make these decisions 
look, what we may view as not as being an insignificant thing and not even a threat, perhaps may not be what he's looking at, right? So I guess my question is, so let's forget about the the sort of hypotheticals about, you know, this might happen and then that, but rather, let me put it to you even more, more succinctly. If Vladimir perceives that something, whatever that might be, is happening that does directly threaten his ability to stay in charge of Russia, whether it's a covert program or whether it's a significant military victory, whatever it might be, just that if he perceives that that action impacts him, do you think that that becomes the sort of line that he would consider sort of this next step, this escalation? Well, so I may think the best way. Okay. A key point here is that I believe Putin knows that the use of nuclear weapons will be the end of his regime. So if he believes it, he has no option but to nuke Ukraine because, you know, Ukraine has a massive force that's headed for Moscow. And, oh, my God, Ukraine is now turning the tables on. Yeah, yeah, okay. And in, in that situation, he has no choice. Uh, but the use of nuclear weapons of any form, whether it's tactical or he decides to, uh, you know, drop a uh, strategic bomb on Kiev and, you know, level the city, that would basically be the end of his regime. And I say this because everybody would have to abandon him, except maybe North Korea. Uh, The Chinese couldn't do business with him. Nobody could do business with him. Uh, Nobody would basically engage with Russia until Putin leaves office. Uh, the, The... impact of the uh, economic sanctions so far actually haven't been overly felt from what we could tell. It's been sort of a disappointment, but I mean, it, it would be the end of him. I, I mean, he, he knows that. So can, can I security ask app. Yeah, go ahead. So something based on that. All right. So I, I agree with you. Like, I, you know, it would be, you know, he would genuinely be a pariah at that point. Um, but, you know, one of the things looking at Russian doctrine over the, last decade before Ukraine, there seems to be this, I don't know if it's a minority, but there's a belief within the Russian military that perhaps, you know, a tactical nuclear war, uh, you know, weapon could be used decisively and without repercussion. So taking Putin out of the mix, do you think that there is this cadre of, of Russian leadership, Russian military leadership that perhaps does believe that? Is that something we should be concerned? And, and again, you go to the Q missile crisis, it turns out that you know, uh, I forget the guy's name, but the colonel, uh, it turns out that he actually had tactical control of those nuclear weapons in 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 Cuba at the height of the Cuban Missile. We didn't know this right, until right. far after. So right. is it possible that, okay, we've got Putin, you're, you're, what you're saying tracks, but what about on the general level? What about on the flag ops level? Is there's a potential that, you know, if they have tactical control over nuclear weapons, and we don't need to go into the, the details of who has, you know, authority. Is that a concern, Jason? Is that something that there is this doctrinal sort of approach within Russian military leadership that says perhaps, hey, you can use this decisively? Well, here's the here's an interesting aspect of this, though. If you're talking about a tactical nuclear weapon, uh, you know, a very low yield nuclear weapon, the actual effect on the battlefield would be mostly psychological. Because you're you're not talking about 
a, a high enough yield that, you know, they, they drop that one nuke and the Ukrainian military is done. Uh, on top of that, you would drop that nuke and you'd basically create an area that nobody would be able to go into. You know, so uh, on the one hand, yeah, you killed the Ukrainian troops there. But on the other hand, you created a, uh, an area that slimed, using the old terminology, uh, that people would need to stay the hell away from because you created a mini Chernobyl there. So what did that actually accomplish on the battlefield? And then you have the global repercussions of that where they, they you know, I mean, the, the genie is out of the bottle since Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but uh, Russia doing it at that point, it, it, if all they, if they let off one tactical nuke, I, I mean, <laughs> All the second order effects, I mean, you, you would have us uh, sending battalions of M1 Abrams to the Ukrainian military. You would have us sending attackums. Uh, we'd be declaring a no-fly zone over Ukraine probably at that point. Um, I mean, you, you'd be talking about such an escalation uh, that, again, it, it would really you know, kind of jumpstart things to, uh, Listen, to their conclusion. I, I agree with that. And this is, this is, will be my final question to you. And this is something that you think about Saddam in Iraq, right? If Saddam had really understood that if he wasn't, if he, I don't think he believed that his co-op, his lack of cooperation would lead to an invasion. I don't think, you know, he saw that he survived, you know, the first Gulf War, Bush was no longer in power and he was the, la the elder Bush. Do you think, I mean, all of what you're saying makes sense and it tracks. But it relies on the premise that the people that have this authority from Putin on down believe that. And I guess my question is, do you – everything you're saying is, is rational and thoughtful. Do you think the Russians, from Putin to the senior leaders in, on the field, do you think they understand that? I do. I, I actually do. Uh, so I, I am I, – I, it's the best way to put this. Um, I've studied Russian propaganda and disinformation. I've studied basically how they message things. I don't believe that they're as incredible and uh, all knowing about it as people say they are. But I do believe that the Russians are very good about thinking through what they're presenting on television. Putin saying that he's going to use nukes is intended to have a, uh, it, it, it's intended to influence. It's not intended to be, I'm using nukes. Now I'm pushing the button. Now I've nuked you. I mean, he, he's not narrating his actions. He's trying to influence people. So, I mean, I, I believe a lot of what we're seeing coming out of Russia, a lot of the leaks coming out of Russia in, in different forms, I think that you have a, a lot of disinformation and a lot of influence coming out of there. I, I think that the, the greatest asset Putin has right now is us believing that he is delusional, us believing that he really would hit the button. Uh, I mean, it's already had an effect on uh, the U.S. slowing its supply of munitions to Ukraine. We should have been sending them attackums a while ago, I think. Uh, you know, and as Russia escalates, they know we're going to escalate as well. I mean, it, 
the Russians thought this was going to be a war that was going to be over in a matter of days. Now they're stuck and they're trying to reach an end game of some kind, uh, you know, massing 300,000 troops to send over there is going to take a long time. Uh, and I, I, I think that this, whatever the calculus is that, you know, that Putin's making as he's activating these people, I, I think that this is all playing towards the end game as opposed to uh, playing, t- playing towards a, this is how I'm going to salvage it and win the war. I mean, I think that right now he is playing to uh, tie politically. He's playing for whatever this end is. He wants to be able to at least declare that they tied, if not declare they won, when strategically he's already lost. And I think he knows that politically he's already lost. But as he plays to the home crowd, I think he wants to mass these 300,000 troops, do something with them, and then declare victory afterwards and pin medals on the 300,000 troops as he sends them home. I mean, he's basically trying to bury this complete fiasco that he's already had in this end game where he can at least say that, uh, you know, hey, we won, you know, even if the 300,000 didn't really accomplish anything but stand on the border with uh, antiquated equipment and no training. I mean, I, I, I just, the, the war is not sustainable for them. So, but okay. The, so th- th- let, let me just say one thing yeah. that, that one of the most important moments in the war, I believe was, uh, you know, in those opening days, uh, the Russian military lost more men more quickly then we lost in Iwo Jima, which was, you know, the, the bloodiest battle in the Pacific. I mean, that rate of loss, we, we didn't think that we would see again. You know, it, it really, the, the Russians were completely shattered. And now they're, they're just trying to find a way to salvage things. So, uh, you know, they, they, so the defeat doesn't look as complete as it really has already been. So, okay. So here's briefly, Jason, the last sort of 60 seconds we have left. All of this kind of leads me to this question. The Trump declassified, the Trump classified document hall. Can you, you know, we're talking about, you know, regardless of whether Putin's calculus is to actually use nukes or not. um, Clearly there is a, you know, part of our sort of, uh, ability to counter Russia relies on us well having secrets and being able to collect on them. How detrimental, if you think it is, uh, is what is happening with this whole classified document fiasco that it's been sort of, you know, from the pictures to the fact that it's being bandied between different federal agencies and people who aren't clear to see it to the fact that apparently Trump took these documents, you know, as he left the White House. Can you round that up in a very succinct way in the last 60 seconds we have here? I, I think that you have to break it down into a couple areas. On the one hand, the most important, most critical national security laws we have have been violated. And that wherever the evidence leads, it needs to either be punished and go to jail or exonerated appropriately. But these are laws that we absolutely must enforce. So you look at the documents, you look at what what you know has been leaked so far, 
it looks really, really bad. And I believe that, you know, it must be prosecuted appropriately, you know, or on the other hand, hey, if, if it, they look at everything, they realize that there are misunderstandings, they want to exonerate him, hey, fine. That's its own bin. On the other hand, when you worry in general about, you know, whether or not Trump represents uh, a danger to national security for leaking, you know, the most secret secrets of our government, it goes beyond what documents he has in the basement. I, I think that we're missing the forest for the trees. Everything that he was briefed on, everything he knows, I mean, if, if he wants to fly to another country and talk to uh, foreign nationals about all the crazy secrets of the country, I think he actually has far more damaging information in his head that can come out his mouth than he probably even has in the basement because he was exposed to so much. So I'm more worried about him specifically and what he knows than what was actually in the basement from a uh, you know national security, what damage can he do perspective. Well, sobering thoughts as always, Jason. I wish we could go on longer. So thanks so much for uh, coming here today and, and sharing your thoughts. Thanks for having me. Thanks once again to Jason Amron for joining us. If you like this episode of Declassified, We'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really helps us grow and make sure that we can bring the content that you want to hear. As always, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek.